Oh, why not tonight? That is a song that has been sung countless times over the centuries, over the periods of time, and has prompted many an individual to think soberly, seriously, and urgently about his or her standing before God. And we'll sing that song later in our service tonight, if it be the will of God. So thankful are we, as has already been mentioned, for the opportunity we've each been given to assemble and to gather. And I trust we've done so with a desirous heart and mind to offer worship to the one who is the principal audience, the one who, of course, is so deserving of our highest attention and our highest worship that we have to offer. As has been mentioned, we're so thankful for the evening opportunity to assemble. And tonight we continue our series of studies on that Old Testament book of Ezekiel. It is to that book I would again invite your attention as we consider a lesson entitled, The Soul That Sinneth. So far, I have known that many have expressed sentiments or comments about how that you found this study of Ezekiel to be a helpful and beneficial thing, a particular encouraging matter to prompt each of us to reflect yet again that what's written in the Old Testament is written for our learning, so often portrayed in a very dramatic and vivid way, and yet it touches sometimes our heart in a very profound fashion. Tonight, as we come to this lesson, it might be well to begin it by rehearsing some of those things that we have seen in the, uh, in the particular studies that have preceded us. In particular, we have noted on those studies, we began with a study of the person of Ezekiel himself. We noted this particular gentleman found himself in a very unfavorable condition, namely that of captivity, and yet God called him to be a prophet. He was a priest, of course, and following that we noticed especially his call in chapters 1 to 3. In chapters 4 to 7, we cast the spotlight very carefully on the matter of judgment and the opportunity that he was to present before the people to recognize by way of, of the symbolic illustrations of the greatness of how much their error had led them astray. Then in chapters 8 through 11, we turned the spotlight and considered a lesson dealing with the matter of their abominations and why the judgment of God was coming in the way that it was. In chapters 12 to 15, last Sunday evening, we considered a lesson dealing especially with the terrible plight of judgment, idols, and even the interesting scene of King Zedekiah himself. All of that now is a bit of history for you and for me as we come tonight to chapter 16 to 19. It is the case as we begin to consider these chapters yet again. God commissioned Ezekiel and in these chapters He will present before the people some rather challenging issues to be sure. But all the while it is the Word of God. It isn't Ezekiel's thoughts. It isn't his speculations. It was the Word of God for them to respond to and to answer to. It is with that in mind, I'd invite you to come to the 16th chapter of Ezekiel. As we do that, you will appreciate that it's a rather lengthy chapter, and thankfully, at least for the purpose of our lesson, the main ideas of the entire chapter, all 63 verses of it, can be highlighted very briefly and very succinctly. As I've studied this particular series of lessons on Ezekiel, one of the things that has been certainly reminded of me is that, quite frankly, it appears to me, the book of Ezekiel has gotten a bad name through the, through the centuries. Some think Ezekiel's hard to understand. Some think Ezekiel is so overwhelmingly challenging that the best one can hope to do is just spuriously read it and be content with that fact. But really, Ezekiel, in many ways, is easier to appreciate chronologically than, say, is Jeremiah. 
And quite frankly, many of the things set forth in Ezekiel, although vivid it may be, often it's interpreted for us later in that chapter or in another chapter. So in many ways, God tells us exactly what some of the potentially troubling passages might well mean. That'll be the case, in fact, tonight. In the 16th chapter, I've entitled it this, Naked and Bare. That phrase will occur twice in this chapter, and it's a very telling phrase. It begins with the observations you'll see at the top of that slide. The city of Jerusalem, she was the favored city of the Jewish race. She had been looked upon so favorably by God, God had heaped upon her blessings throughout the previous centuries. In fact, from the time that David selected that city as his capital, recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, that city was exceedingly highly respected by the Jews because that's where that temple ultimately was constructed. That's where the name of God thus was placed. For that reason, Jerusalem came to mean a great deal to the people of Israel. You'll notice by the time of Ezekiel, Jerusalem considered herself faithful. Although God through His prophets had challenged her to realize her sin, to realize her iniquity, and to realize her abomination by way of idolatry and otherwise, by and large Jerusalem considered herself far better than most any other nation on earth. We'll learn tonight that God had a picture for her. It's almost as if God holds up a mirror and says, Look at this. Do you really think that you are as favored, that you are as pious, that you are as godly as you consider yourself to be? Maybe for us, we always ought to be very quick to examine ourselves as well along that same line. But as you look at some of these features concerning it, Jerusalem is initially in the opening verses of chapter 16 described like this. Verse number 3 says, Thy birth and thy nativity was or is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother an Hittite. Almost immediately that seems very intriguing, doesn't it? The people of Israel, of course, came out of the very loins of Abraham. They were those who could trace their history to Isaac, to Jacob, to Abraham, and a host of other noble worthies. And yet here God specifically told them, You, verse number 3, are such that your father is an Amorite, that is, a heathen, pagan man. And furthermore, your mother is a Hittite, again, a person who had little interest in the things of God. You might appreciate immediately that God isn't stating that their physical inheritance was from Amorites as well as Hittites. God is making a statement of their religious heritage in the sense that you ought to have been pure and noble and dedicated to me, and yet it's as if you came out of Hittites and Amorites. It's as if you have forsaken the spiritual heritage you were given and you have begun to follow after those that were of a mother, if you please, of Hittite or Amorite, Amorite descendancy. Again, that whole passage has to do with their choices religiously. You'll notice beyond that, it helps us notice that that's portrayed like this in verse 4. And as for thy nativity in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. Picture it with me, if you would. God's drawing an image for them. It's as if a woman gave birth to a healthy baby. But yet, rather than caring for it, rather than the family nursing it, taking care of it, they cast it outside to fend for itself. 
God says in your nativity, you'll notice you weren't salted, you weren't washed with water. It's as if you still had all that blood on you, as if you just came out and you were cast aside. God says in the next verse, nobody had pity on you. None pitied you to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. Again, God paints a picture for them that in your heritage you ought to have been so cared for and yet it's as if you were cast out by parents who didn't have anything to do with you. At that point, perhaps you can see a picture that looks like this one. In the upper left-hand side is a picture. I hope you can make it out. It's of a baby that's been cast out into a field, left to die, left to fend for itself, the horror of it all. And yet we notice here a description like that is God says this is the kind of choices that you have made. You'll notice as it continues on in verse 6, a new paragraph begins, that God says, and when I passed by thee, it's as if the babe was lying out in the field and the God of heaven passed by and said, Live, yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, Live. God saw the little babe that had been forsaken. Remember, representative of this people of Israel. And God wanted it to live. And so it was, in verse number 7, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great. Thou hast come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Israel as a people had no right to anticipate greatness. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, God said, you weren't militarily stronger than anybody else. You weren't high in terms of your economy and your financial business. The only thing that made you great is because I selected you and I put my blessings upon you. And you may remember that is what happened to Israel. In terms of national size, they were tiny. The whole nation of Israel was far smaller than some counties in the United States of America. That's how small this place was, and yet think of how great they became because God was with them. God said, you were like a babe, had nothing to look forward to until I found you. And then I made something special, something worthwhile of you, and I covered you with ornaments. Look at the lady at the bottom right. God took them from what you see at the top left to figuratively what appears at the bottom right. Look at what Israel became. She was dressed in her finery. She had a crown on her head. You'll notice in verses 8 through 10. She was clothed in fine apparel. She was one that had occupied the greatest grandeur of the area, and God did it for her. It is at this point that things seemingly are very sweet for Israel. Let's go back to some of those previous slides, however. Sadly enough, though she was chosen and though she was selected, she did not remain faithful. Beginning in verse number 12, we notice descriptions to the following thrust. She chose to cast aside all that had made her beautiful. She chose to cast aside all that had made her so attractive to the God of heaven. Her faithfulness, the character of her beauty, the nature of what made her fine in the sight of heaven. And so it was at verse number 15 that this description is given. And thy, but thou didst trust in thine own beauty, 
and played the harlot because of thy renown, and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by. His it was. God says, I took you from nothing to make you what you were, and now you forsook me. You forsook all the blessings I gave you. You forsook all the character of the nobility I implanted within you. You despised my prophets. You despised my priests. You despised all that was noble and good. You turned your back upon me and my word. You went literally from a statement of rags to riches and then back to rags again. Verses verses 16 and 17 says, And of thy garments thou didst take, and deckest with thy high places with with divers colors, and played the harlot thereupon. The like thing shall not come, neither shall it be so. God says, Those fine pieces of clothing that I gave you, Those fine jewels that I gave you, you took and gave them to the idolatrous nations. You took and gave them to the idols. Almost unthinkable in a way, isn't it? You'll notice as we come to the next slide and the development continues, you'll notice as they did all these things, in many ways the description becomes even more shocking. You'll notice with me, if you would, there was to be no remembrance in Israel of the days of their youth. You would think that she would have remembered the earlier centuries when all was well. You might have thought she would have a keen insight to think back to what it was like in the days of David or the days or the early days of Solomon when the kingdom was grand, when they were victorious. Now they had slipped so far and seemed to have no reflection upon it. And specifically, you'll notice in verse number 26, statement is made about one of the nations with whom they were playing the harlot. It was the nation of Egypt. And later in verses 28 and 29, Assyria is mentioned. You get the picture that this beautiful woman that was made beautiful by God, she's now trusting in her own beauty and her own riches, and she is literally playing the religious harlot with every nation and every person that comes by. You can almost sense a tear streaming down the face of God as He describes what this nation, whom He had made so beautiful, what they had chosen to do. In particular, I would invite you to notice that one of the sad reflections that certainly mentioned is that in a way, Israel was even worse than a prostitute. You and I know the way a prostitute goes about her business is that those who come to her for her favors pay her. God says, you, Israel, have been worse than a harlot because you, rather than being the case of a prostitute, you pay them to take your stuff. Can you imagine the picture? God says, that's what Israel had become. That's what Judah was now doing. You are going out and using my jewels, you're using my clothing, you're using all the blessings I've given you, and you are giving it away, and all the while you're playing the prostitute. Worse than a harlot. You'll notice in the latter part of the chapter then in verse 35, God says, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. It was time for them to hear the express word of the heaven, and sadly enough, they had little interest in that at this point. And so it is in verses 36 and following, God paints a picture of judgment that's coming upon them. And you'll notice one of the phrases that He uses in verse number 39 is, You're going to go back to a similar state to where I found you. 
When I found you, Israel, you were naked and bare as a child left to die on its own. And you're headed back to be naked and bare because I'm going to forsake you. In judgment, I'm going to allow Babylon to come and take you off to captivity. And I am going to turn and recognize that that is the judgment due to your sin. What a picture. The picture perhaps developed so powerfully we notice in verses 44 and following that even the family, the proverbial family of Israel is listed. I'd invite you to notice the names. Particularly we find specifically, verse number 45 it says, Thou art thy mother's daughter that loatheth her husband and her children, and thou art the sister of thy sisters which loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was an Hittite, your father an Amorite. Thine elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Picture it. For the Jews there was no one more hated than Sodom and Samaria. Those were foreign nationalities or ancient cities on whom the judgment of God had come, and the Jew felt she was much better than either of them. And here through Ezekiel, God says, guess what, Israel? You've got an older sister and she's Samaria. Your younger sister is Sodom, and guess what? Just like both of them have gone into captivity or into utter destruction like Sodom did, the same thing is going to happen to you. You're a member of the same family. What a sobering lesson. Is it any wonder that the last few verses of Ezekiel 16 brings us to recognize the following? We actually find God in verse 54 saying this, Believe it or not, Jerusalem actually made Sodom and Samaria look good. Both those places look good compared to Jerusalem. Doesn't that paint a picture as to how far Jerusalem had stooped? The kind of behavior that she had allowed herself to engage in to make those two look good? It is in that way we notice the sins of Sodom are listed in verses 49 to 51. And we're aware that one of them was homosexuality, and for that we certainly would make no excuse, but note the other things, for which Sodom paid the ultimate price. It says, her pride, verse 49. She was full of bread, verse 49. She was one who trusted in the abundance of her idleness, and she was at ease. Verse 51, she was haughty, committed abominations. For all those things, verse 52. She was destroyed. You'll notice that Jerusalem again was about to suffer a similar fate. May we say as we close that particular chapter that God holds out a ray of hope in verses 60 to 63. And in there He paints a rather remarkable picture of what's ultimately going to happen in the great day when His covenant is respected. A covenant that points really to the day of Jesus in the New Testament era. With that, we come to chapter number 17. These pictures we have seen before, and you notice again, back to being naked and bare, Jerusalem was going to go. Chapter 17 presents one of the parables of the Old Testament, maybe one of the better known parables of the Old Testament, admittedly. We're so accustomed to Jesus' teaching in parables, and yet we ought not forget that there were some parables in the Old Testament. We remember that Balaam spoke one back in Numbers, chapters 22 to 24, but on this occasion Ezekiel presents one, or perhaps I should say God through Ezekiel, and it has to do with two eagles and a vine. 
As you think about the nature of these, of course, the meaning will be abundantly clear to us as God explains it in just a moment. It all begins that God makes mention of a riddle. He makes mention of a riddle phrased as a parable in verses 2 and 3. And it begins, as you can see, like this. A great eagle came to Lebanon. And when this great eagle came, it specifically is said to have taken the highest cedar branch. And not only did it take it, it cropped off the twigs and took it to the land of traffic. We perhaps can easily imagine the scene that is set before us. A great eagle came. You notice a cedar is mentioned, and this great eagle lopped off or took the highest of the trees, not just any of the cedars now, but the highest one, and cropped off the twigs and took it back to the land of traffic. And as the Scriptures reveal to us this set of events, you and I perhaps have a degree of wonderment as to what the eagle represents and where is the land of traffic and what are the circumstances surrounding this high cedar branch being taken there. You'll notice that before we're through, we'll notice another eagle is going to have a role to play in this. But for now, let's revisit that previous slide and appreciate the substance of it. May I submit to you that beginning in verse number 11 of Ezekiel 17, this parable is interpreted for us. We really have no question as to what it means. That sounds a lot like those circumstances in the New Testament when, for instance, Jesus explained the parable of the sower of the seed. Remember in Matthew 13, He explained what the soils meant. He explained what it was involved in the parable of the tares. Here, the meaning is this. Babylon is that great eagle. And furthermore, we readily appreciate that the highest cedar in this place of Lebanon was the king, the king, of course, of Judah. And you'll notice that the eagle came, lopped off not only that highest cedar, but took some twigs with it and went to the land of traffic. That land of traffic, of course, was back to Babylon. That was a land recognized for its industry, for its economy, for its traffic, if you please. And as God explains it, He quickly highlights for us the powerful reality that the king, the name of the king taken was Jehoiachin. I've listed that for you to give consideration with me that the book of 2 Kings provides the details. Particularly in 2 Kings 24 verses 11 and following, we have the record of Jehoiachin being taken by Nebuchadnezzar off to Babylon in the very circumstance prophesied here. You'll notice as that chapter proceeds to unfold, we notice verse 5 says, He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. Now there again we are perhaps faced with an intriguing matter and thankfully God assists us to understand it. It says again, He took of the seed of the land and placed it in a fruitful field. May I submit to you, the explanation for that is about the middle of that slide. There was the case that after Nebuchadnezzar removed Jehoiachin, he needed to put in place somebody to serve as the king over this remaining area of Judea. Zedekiah was the man he chose. Zedekiah is the, the one who here in, verse, in this verse is listed as being installed as the king. I would invite you to notice his description though. He isn't likened to an oak... He's likened to a willow. 
a willow tree bends and sways in the wind. It's not strong, it's not fortified, and that's exactly a description of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was not known for his strength. He wasn't morally strong. He wasn't physically strong either. He was a man who really was a weakling, and that's exactly who Nebuchadnezzar wanted there so he could control him. In fact, he wanted Zedekiah to be a puppet nation to him. You'll notice beyond that, it was to offer an opportunity of providing a buffer zone between him and the more powerful Egyptian nation. All of that we learn from Jeremiah chapters 42 to 43. It might be fair to say as you close that slide with me, Zedekiah, however, was planted in a strong place. Notice the great waters mentioned in verse 5. Notice, in fact, the statement in verse 8, the good soil. He had every opportunity to be great, but he was not so. Don't we learn from that that verse number 9 and 10 says that God's going to judge him for that weakness. And finally, you appreciate that there's another eagle that enters into this in verse number 7. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches toward him that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. We learn later in verse 15 that the second eagle was Egypt. The first one was Babylon, the second one was Egypt. And you'll notice that again a rather sad spectacle is listed in, in this chapter. Let's develop that somewhat quickly. Because in that interpretation, here was the idea. When Zedekiah was installed as the king, we learn particularly in Jeremiah 52 as well as 2 Chronicles 36 that he gave his word to Nebuchadnezzar that he would be a faithful vassal state to Assyria. He did not, in fact, admit that he would rebel. He promised he wouldn't. And yet the time here came when not too long into his administration, he did the very thing he promised he would not. He, in fact, besought help from Egypt and turned his vine in that direction and, in fact, asked the king of Egypt to come and help him thwart the Babylonian onslaught. God judged Zedekiah because he wasn't true to his word. Among the other things we can learn, God expects us to be true to our word. We ought not be given to lies, Ephesians 4.25. And don't we learn in Revelation 21.8 that one of the things we see that liars will not enter heaven. Zedekiah was a liar. He straightforwardly went, did the very thing he promised the king of Babylon he would not do. Maybe in fairness to that, the slide rather rapidly closes with a rather sweet prophecy that there's a one name that you and I know of as Jesus who is coming. In verses 22 to 24, there is to be a highest branch yet, and that highest branch is going to be Jesus, the perfect one, the Messiah, the anointed one, and it is to that branch that all eyes should turn their attention. Thanks be unto God that those prophecies like that one are found in the book of Ezekiel, as well as some of the other places of the Old Testament. You'll notice the pictures there. We now can appreciate not the one eagle, but the two, both Babylon and Egypt. And also we notice at the bottom this vine that ought to have been so noteworthy, and yet rather than doing what it should, it turned its attention again to Egypt. To chapter number 18, we are prepared to go. In that chapter, we again find a section that I have entitled Individual Response. 
the people of Israel had a proverb that they considered in Ezekiel's day. It was a proverb that went like this, verse 2 of Ezekiel 18. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. The children of Israel were under the impression that those statements at the top were the circumstances. Manasseh was an evil king of Judah, and God had promised punishment to come on Judah because of his sins and because of what he approved. Some of the people, in fact, it seems perhaps many of them, were under the impression that Manasseh had sinned and they, namely the people of Judah, were paying for his sins, that they themselves weren't so quite guilty. God used a whole chapter, all of Ezekiel 18, to show them that that perspective is wrong. Notice again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but it's the children's teeth are set on edge. That's what the people thought. They thought Manasseh should have been the one punished, not us. He's the one that sinned, not us. God uses this chapter to help them appreciate the following lesson. Verses 3 and 4 state it like this. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The people didn't think they had any sins. They thought they were perfect. Jesus dealt with some people like that, didn't He? The Pharisees often were so highly regarded in their own mind. They thought they were the examples of absolute religion. They thought they were the great examples of spirituality. And more than once, the Lord said, Behold, you are like sepulchers. You appear whited on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Matthew 23. Furthermore, He had the nerve and the truth to say to them, You, when you find a proselyte to convert, you make him twice more a child of hell than you are. Those were the words of the Master. They thought far more highly of themselves than what they should. Here, the nation of Israel needed to be reminded of some thoughts like these. Beginning in verse number 5, If a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments. He is just, and he shall surely live. I wanted to read that passage because it occurs three times verbatim in this chapter. That long passage I just read will be repeated not once, not twice, but three times. It's clear that God's people had fallen into all those activities and behaviors. You'll notice again, they were defiling their neighbor's wives, coming near menstruous women. They were charging too much interest when they lent money. They were, in fact, give, being given to violence. They weren't taking care by compassion of the poor and the needy. God's people were failing in these ways. God says, let me tell you something. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Don't you blame Manasseh. Don't you blame your fathers and grandfathers. You have sinned, and you, if you're guilty of sin, you're going to die. 
In verses 10 to 13, God paints the picture by way of a father and a son. If he beget a son that's a robber, a shedder of blood, or that doeth the like, any one of these things. So consider it. Suppose a man is faithful. A man is like that previous listing who wasn't given to any of those activities. But suppose he has a son that is given to them. God says, despite the fact the father will live, that son's going to die. Notice again, God is an impartial judge, isn't he? If that son is guilty of sin, the son will have to reckon for that sin with God. In verses 14 and following, God now paints a picture of a grandchild. So consider it. There's a faithful man. There's a sorry son. Now there's a faithful grandson. God says that grandson, if he recognizes the errors of his father, if he recognizes the evil of his own dad and chooses not to follow it, that grandson will live. God says again, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. But the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. You'll notice the powerful admonition then to repent in verse number 30. God admonishes these people in that way. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Notice then even the Old Testament era, it's not that you could rest on the successes of your parents. It's not that you could rest upon the failures of other generations. God judged each one individually, didn't He? The nature of that judgment brings us then in finality to appreciate that we're prepared to come to the 19th and closing chapter of our lesson tonight. We've seen then the individual nature of judgment. How that in chapter 18, that proverb about the father having eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth being set on edge, that wasn't true then and it isn't true now. And so he teaches this lesson in the 19th chapter of Ezekiel. I've entitled it, Lions and Vines. As often as we have seen, the rather prolific way that Ezekiel presented things by virtue of the Holy Spirit's inspiration, that same truth comes here. But there's an interesting word used near the outset of this chapter. Please note verse 1 with me. Moreover, take thou up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. And the key word there is that word lamentation. You and I are familiar that a lamentation is used on occasions of a funeral. A person laments when they're overwhelmed in grief. A person laments when a significant loss has happened to them. God says we need to lament for the princes of Israel. A great loss is going to be described in this chapter. Let's do it under the banner of a description involving vines and lions. As we do that, let's come to notice a mother is portrayed in verse 2. And say, what is thy mother, a lioness? She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. And she brought up one of her whelps. It became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains unto the land of Egypt. It's easy to see, isn't it, that this mother, this lioness, she chose out of her cubs one that became a very noteworthy cub, grew into a strong lion. And as this lion grew into a strong lion, 
We notice in verses 4 and 5, the nations heard of him. He had a degree of victory. He was powerfully recognized by name and reputation. I wonder what this represents. Who is the mother and who is the cub that grew up to be such a noteworthy and strong being? May I submit to you, that appears to be a clear reference to another one of the kings of Judah named Jehoahaz. In fact, I would invite you to notice it seems as if it's almost a clear description of him in many ways. Let's see if you do not agree. You'll notice that this Jehoahaz, he became king of Judah at the tender age of 23, as recorded for us in Second Chronicles. You'll notice his father was the godly man Josiah. But you'll notice after Josiah was slain in battle at Megiddo, the nation of Israel selected Jehoahaz as the next king. Well, Jehoahaz, in that position of king, he too was known by surrounding nations. He was the king. But now I wonder what happened next. Let's begin reading where I left off before. What happened to this Jehoahaz? What happened to this lion cub after he was grown? Verse 6 says, And he went up and down among the lions. He became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devoured men. And he knew their desolate place, palaces, and he laid waste their cities, and the land was desolate, and the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. Then the nations set against him on every side from the provinces and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit, and they put him in ward and chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. So this king... After a degree of success, the nations turned their attention against him. And it specifically says they put their hooks into him and dragged him off into a foreign land, particularly Babylon. And we notice that that's exactly what happened. Second Kings 23 verses 3 and following tells us Jehoahaz was forcibly removed and taken to the very place. And on that occasion, it was there that he died. You'll notice as you look at that particular appreciation with me, we seemingly find in this a description again of the lion made such a bad decision. He grew up with opportunities for greatness but forsook them. No wonder perhaps we observe that after his removal, another cub was chosen. The people selected another leader of their land. They chose another king. And you'll notice as we come and appreciate all that befell this one, the description is now observed as follows. This other cub, after he was lifted up and made into a position of notoriety, he too was forcibly removed and taken to a foreign land. This one also seems to be the one described by one of the kings. As you turn to the next slide with me, this one seems to be Jehoiachin. He too was forcibly removed. He too was taken sorrowfully and rather sadly and tragically to a foreign place. It is at this time that I would draw your attention to one of the last statements of chapter, of chapter number 19. Verses 13 and 14 put it like this, And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground, and fire has gone out of the rod of her branches, which hath devoured her fruit, so that she hath no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation, and shall be for a lamentation. 
The two kings, Jehoiachin and Jehoahaz, they were not strong leaders. They were forcibly removed. And now God's people are portrayed as being in a place under lamentation. They're in a dry and thirsty ground, verse 13. When all of this came to pass, you can certainly see with me that the vine was plucked up. The vine that God had at one time planted, He removed it because they were unfaithful. Isn't it true that same description is made of institutions in Matthew, in the New Testament? In Matthew 15, the Son of God Himself said that any institution, call it a church if you will, that's unknown to and unauthorized by God, He says, I'm going to root it up. I'm going to remove it. What a thought then you and I ought to have about remaining faithful and true to the very plan and power of the God of heaven. In these chapters tonight, we have perhaps closingly seen the nature of these lions. She chose not one but two cubs, and both of them were so far less than what they ought to have been. They were removed by these foreign nations. And tonight, the thrill of our study closes as we remark about brevity in terms of what we've seen. We've seen everything from the naked and bare description of Judah back in chapter 16 to the characteristic of the parable of the vines and the cedars that we saw in chapter 17, to the characteristic of individual judgment in chapter 18, the soul that sinneth it shall die. And we've closed tonight with these cubs, the vines and the lines, to appreciate that God had a message for ancient Judah. It was a message that you would hope they would have listened to, but sadly enough, we're about to learn in the next chapters they didn't. Next week we'll pick up in chapter 20 and look at what awaits us next for these powerful words of Ezekiel. But tonight as we each analyze ourselves, what about me and what about you? When you and I look in the mirror, do we do a better job than Jerusalem did? She couldn't see any of her sins. She thought they were nothing and so light. Whereas she should have realized they were dooming her to eternal ruin. Are you and I wiser than that? I trust that we are, for we are able to look into the perfect law of liberty, James 1.25, and to extract therefrom the fact that it's the just that shall live by faith, to borrow the very wording that we read in Romans 1, verses 17 and 18. Tonight, as you analyze your life and as I do the same for me, may we be far wiser than ancient Judah was. May we do much better than ancient Jerusalem. For may we realize that the Savior has now come. The one they looked forward to, you and I have in reality. If you're not a faithful member of His body tonight, don't leave this building lost. Don't leave this place unsaved. God loved you so much, He sent His Son to die for you. And these words of Ezekiel are just a foretaste of the greatness of the covenant that He brought. That covenant demands that you believe Him to be the Son of God, you repent of your sins, you confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if you've taken care of that need, but you've wandered away from the fold of safety, like just like Jerusalem did, why not think back to the days of your spiritual youth, just like they should have? And why not run at once back to the arms of the one that loves you? He does want to welcome you home. And if we can assist in a public way toward that end tonight... Brother Jonathan has chosen a hymn of encouragement. Let us help you even now while together we stand and sing.